Well, then that brings us to our text today. Today we are in Romans chapter 1, verses 16 and 17. And I would encourage you to either grab a Bible, have a Bible, or get one on your phone so you can follow along. We'll simply be kind of going back and forth out of that text so you can read it yourself and believe that I am not deceiving you in the things that I would say. Um, Our text today, I'm, I'm excited about. I'm a little nervous about because, you know, sometimes we talk about, I, I talk about a set of texts you should really know, right? And we talked about the first and greatest commandment not too long ago out of Deuteronomy. You should really know that one. It's reflection in, in Matthew 22. And there's certain texts that I think everyone should like memorize and lock in. Today's text is one of those I think you really, really need to not only be aware of, but memorize because it's full of help and instruction and power for you. So let me pray and ask for the Lord's blessing as we, as we go on. So Father, I thoroughly feel um, the inappropriateness of the moment of this text, which is so powerful and so helpful, um, being taught by myself this morning. Lord, we need these things. We need your truths. We need your word. We need the help of your spirit to open our eyes to um, see what you've said. And we really need the work of your spirit to see what we believe in contrast to that so that we might learn the new. We might repent of the old and lean to the new. So I pray that for us all as we listen to your word and for myself, Lord, that you would keep me from error. Father, this book of Romans is uh, deep waters and it is, in your words, meat. So be with us, Lord, as we begin our, um, our, our journey into this book and into the meat of this book and the the power that lies in it. Um, Father, believe that these meaty things that you give us are not trivial. They're not simply points of information to be correctly understood, Lord, but they are in themselves vast elements of grace. We understand new things, and by understanding and believing those new things, we are helped tremendously. So please, Father, um, give us hearts for this and help me as I would teach it this morning. In Christ's name, amen. So we read our text this morning, um, and you've looked at it, but let me give you a little brief recap as we've got here. We're in chapter 1 of Romans, and so far, where we're at so far, in 1 to 7, um, you don't have to read it, I'll just kind of summarize it for you. 1 to 7, Paul, uh, used to be named Saul, former persecutor of God, now belonging to him, was graciously rescued and forgiven by God and assigned a position called an apostle as an official spokesperson of Jesus to bring the message of Jesus to the non-Jewish people of the world. That's most of us, right? Which, which the scriptures would call Gentiles or sometimes Greek in the book, Greeks in this book. So Gentiles, Greeks, barbarians last week. Um, they're all people that are non-Jewish people. And Paul says, I've been assigned by God after being saved graciously by God because Paul is just simply a sinner like us. I've been assigned this position to go bring this message to the non-Jewish people of the world. And it is this message of s- Jesus summoning through Paul and now through us, summoning the world to himself. Jesus is saying, come, I'm the king. Come under alliance with me. Come, come and align yourself to me. O- the obedience of faith is the phrase he uses. So that's the message going out through Paul. And he finishes that section off by remembering, reminding them that they are deeply loved and cherished by God. They belong to God, and God deeply loves them. So he doesn't start off by saying, hey, you're wrong and uninformed, and you're in threat and he's gonna, God's going to scrape you off his shoe unless you get your act together. He reminds them of security of being loved by a new father. 
Then he goes on to the next set of verses in 8 to 15. He's telling them, I'm writing to you this church in Rome, mostly filled with non-Jew people, to bring understanding um, and particularly to get you ready for the fact that I'm hopefully going to come visit you because I love you and not because I want to take advantage of you, but because I want to come and bring gifts of understanding and to impart a gift of new information to you. And he finishes it off by saying, I am eager, if you look back up at 15, I'm eager to come preach the gospel to you, which is a funny thing. Because we, when we get past thinking gospel is a style of music, then we have this new word gospel. We then think that the gospel is primarily for the person who hasn't known Jesus. But in the book of Romans, the gospel that he's talking about is being brought to people who already know Jesus. People who've heard the gospel, believe the gospel, but need the gospel more. So Paul's saying, I am cracking my knuckles. I'm ready to go. I want to come and bring the gospel to you. And why? Well, that's verse 16. Verse 16 says, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, the Jew first and also to the Greek. For I am not ashamed of the gospel. So our three parts today in our passage is, uh, the title of our, our, our message is The, the prou- Proud of the Powerful Gospel. Our first piece is this, The gospel will be either an embarrassment or a treasure. The gospel itself will be either an embarrassment or a treasure. So number one, what are we talking about with gospel? What are we talking about gospel? Gospel is, is, is the basic core economy of who God is, and it's a branching core. It's the story of God, who he is, his heart for us, what he's done through Jesus. And it's connective. It's a worldview. It goes over everything, but there def- definitely is the central core to it. So he says, I'm coming to bring the gospel to you. And he says in 16, <coughs> for I am not ashamed of the gospel. So what does the word ashamed mean? Um, in, in, our, in our language, ashamed is pretty tightly defined. I regret and want to distance myself, usually from something that was morally rehem, like I didn't like it. Sorry, I lost my word there. Oh, I just left, yeah, that one. I just came out with hemp. Sorry. (laughs) Things I don't want to be associated with, my shame, right? I'm ashamed of those things. In scripture, though, ashamed is a little bit broader. It's embarrassed, not confident, or timid. Or flat out English ashamed, right? It's a little bit broader of a sense, and um, and and in it we see that, that word used several times in the New Testament in various ways, where um, we are ashamed of possibly the gospel, we are ashamed of our old life, um, and then we see it being ashamed of other people. In the New Testament, uh, well, let me give you a couple of these as we run down here. Um, we see ashamed of our old life, for instance, in, in Romans, just think about this, Romans 6.21. But what fruit were you getting at that time from the things of which you are now ashamed? Rebellious actions. For the end of those things is death. And as Christians, we're not ashamed or timid about their connectedness to, to God. So, so the word ashamed is used several times on God's behalf. So we're, we're told that we as Christians, we're called not to be ashamed, ashamed of people. 2 Timothy 1.16, Anesiphorus, for he was often refreshed to me and was not ashamed of my chains. So Paul's in prison, and in those days, if you're in prison, you want to get fed, someone you know has to love you and bring food to you. There wasn't like a meal plan. But here's the deal. If you're in prison and you want to bring a meal plan to somebody in prison, 
you're identifying with a prisoner and their message. And so especially if they're in prison, not because they stole something, but they're in prison because of an ideology or a stirring, that's risky business bringing, you know, food to them. But he says, don't be ashamed of me. Don't be, don't be timid of your connection to me. 2 Timothy 1.8 says this, Therefore, do not be ashamed of the testimony about our Lord, nor of me as prisoner, but share in suffering for the gospel by the power of God. So don't be afraid of my, ashamed of my change, chains. Don't be ashamed of the testimony about the Lord, nor be ashamed of me, his prisoner, but instead rather be willing to share in the suffering. So we see ashamed of our old former lives and rebellion. We see a sh- like this idea of being ashamed of people and their connect- connectedness to them. And the last one is actually God not being ashamed. And it's you. Hebrews 2.11, for he who sanctifies and those who are sanctified all have one source. That is why he is not ashamed to call them brothers. Jesus is not ashamed to call himself your brother. He's coming to stand with you. This is, this is my brother, right? So we, we can see it pro- probably very vividly in relationships how that works, right? Likewise, we have the father saying something similar in Hebrews 11, but as it is, they desire a better country, that is, a heavenly one. Therefore, so people were, in some sense, not ashamed of a heavenly country future. Because therefore, <coughs> God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he's prepared for them a city. So Jesus is not ashamed to stand with you and call you brother, sister. And the Father is not ashamed to call you his people, him being your God. So that idea of shame is really this idea of clinging to or separating from. Ashamed is separating from, distancing yourself from, being timid from something else in the favor of actually going to something else that you would cling to. In our text today, the truth is, the gospel itself, in Paul, and in you and me, will be something in the end that we are either ashamed of or we will be proud of. So he's saying, I'm not ashamed of the gospel. I'm looking forward to coming and bringing this to you because I'm not ashamed, of, I'm not timid, I cling to the gospel. And you and I, likewise, we're going to do something with it. But let me tell you what happens. When you start off your life, you are ashamed of the gospel. You are not clinging to God, and you're not knowing and clinging to his ways. So there's a separation between you and the gospel. In the gospel, the mo- in the moment of salvation, you're saying, okay, I hear this, I see what you're offering me, Lord, And I want to belong to you. I want to belong to you. I put my faith in you. I'm no longer ashamed of the gospel. I embrace the gospel. In fact, I'm ashamed of the former life. So I distance the old for clinging to the new. I reject darkness. I cling to light. I'm ashamed of old sin and darkness. And I cling to, am proud of, am confident in the new. In fact, there's actually an action given to this in the New Testament. Um, because in the clinging the process, it's an open clinging, right? So God came up with and gave us this beautiful action that demonstrates the clinging to. It's called baptism, right? A, a, an element God gives right from, right from the very beginning for us as believers. Jesus asked us to openly cling to him. To do it, in a, and actually baptism is so cool in its imagery. It's not just simply, it could have been, it could have been like he puts a pillar here and a pillar here, and this one's bright and this one's dark and you ceremoniously walk from the black pillar to like hold on to the light pillar or something like that but 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 the imagery of of baptism is far more deep than that it's water you die 
you die like and you come to newness like i am fully a new person know me as this so so this idea of being ashamed is very or being shamed or being proud of and confident of is all over old testament all over new testament it's woven into our very sense of what it means to know the lord so what is i guess my question for you in a moment is this um what is true and what is treasure what is true what is treasure um what is your belief in what is true and what is treasure to you? I think for us, when we think about the concept of being ashamed of or being proud of Christ and his message, one of the hard things for us to realize is just how little we may be ashamed or how greatly we may be ashamed. And really what it is that we love and are more proud of that causes us to be ashamed or timid from Christ and his gospel. It's a little bit of a thinking process, a little bit of an illumination process that has to happen where the Spirit of God would help us and stir in us and give us illumination to that. So my question for you is, do you, do you know what that is? Do you know how you're wired? Do you know what's currently in you that makes you timid to cling to Jesus? I would tell you some things that make me timid to cling to Jesus. Uh, physical discomfort <coughs> makes me a little timid. Um, the approval of my friends and family and all those Facebook people that care about me so much and Instagrammers, that world of council culture out there, I, I want their approval. I want that, like, I want to be, I want to be reasonable in their sight. I want to be, I want to, because I want to maintain the, the, the bridge of connections so I can be help and hope to them, right, supposedly. Um, there's a lot of things that I want that I cling to that I find more secure. Maybe when it comes to issues of how we know what we know, like, I'm more confident in, um, a good old-fashioned documentary, right? Um, but don't we know that's going away? Because you can go find just as many documentaries on how the moon landing is fake as you can. Is there about they're being real now? So, like, there's all kinds of documentaries. There's like, whole channels dedicated to the presence of giant humanoids in North America and all that kind of stuff. So, like, our ability for a good old-fashioned, dependable documentary with uh, Stephen Atterborough, like, talking his cool voice over it, eh, those days are gone. But we tend to have our confidence in those things and earthly authorities and those things. I tend to have cling to those things in my flesh versus being confident of and clinging to the gospel. So our first piece in our journey is this. The gospel will be either an embarrassment or a treasure to you. What further complicates it is when the treasure and the truth tells you you're to, be, you're to treasure the treasure openly, openly and outwardly. Your friends and family, uh, this might be a good little marriage conversation. This might be a good parenting conversation. It might be a friend's conversation. Um, what, what do I treasure? What do you think people think I treasure? Like, what do you think I am not ashamed of? I'm most proud of my life. To be able to ask those questions. Because quite possibly, maybe you think, I'm not ashamed of the gospel. I cling to it. But in all reality, you're quite ashamed of it. It's quite on the DL. It's, it's underneath there. And probably no one's going to know what it is. I would say, in most cases, that's not because the gospel is truly treasured by you. It's just mysteriously hid by something. Usually the issue is, it's just not that treasured by you in the first place. Christ isn't so much your treasure, and the gospel isn't so much treasured by you. At which point, remember who you are. <clears throat> you are, in verse 7, owned by God, loved by God. Rest in that. Christ welcomes us to come again to him. He's in the process of instructing us, showing us his ways, correcting our thinking. So we come as the corrected children of God back to Christ and saying, okay, 
I needed a savior, I have a savior, I have your love secured, but obviously I need to be transformed and changed. So show me what's rooted in me, let's uproot this and take my heart to treasure you. The gospel message, promises and worldview, is our open treasure or else it is clearly not. The gospel message, promises and worldview, is our open treasure or else it is clearly not. And it's worthwhile as the king who came in on the donkey to go and really listen to him and what he's saying. Listen to that gospel. Listen to that treasure and figure out, Lord, where is my heart in connection with this? Am I not a believer? And I'm just kind of passing over what you say. Am I a believer? I believe what you say, but I'm really kind of indifferent to the fullness of it. Because remember, most of this gospel stuff going here is actually for the believers after they believe. So Christ wants you to understand the fullness of the gospel and unfold it in front of you. Our second piece then is this God's saving power is present in the shared message of the gospel. God's saving power is present in the shared message of the gospel. So the first piece is incredibly important because it has to do with you as a worshiper, your perspective towards God and his message. Like is it loved? Is it confidence in it? Or are you kind of shy of it? That there's actually better messages or something else to use. The second piece is a very helpful piece, and this is one of the reasons why I would tell you to memorize this passage, and you should own it, because in the passage is an incredible promise. God has told us where to find his most powerful tool. It says in verse 16, I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. So literally, um, the the word there, kind of hard to see it, but it's literally active believing ones. We are the ones who place our belief in Christ and every day keep believing in him to the Jew first and also the Greek. It's said that way because the message of God was sent to the Jewish people first and then to the Greeks. And remember, that's some of the confusion of the people of Rome. It was a church probably started by Jewish people. The gospel came to them. They believed as, as Jewish people. Then they shared it with Gentiles. They believed too. Then there's this big uprising where all the Jewish people got booted out of Rome because the non-believing Jewish people were really angry about this Jesus Messiah guy, and they created riots, and the emperor said, I'll fix this, Jews out. So now you got a Gentile church still trying to figure out what to do with this religion that kind of came from the Jewish people. So he keeps lacing that time and time again in this book. He goes, this is true for the Jew first and also to the Greek. It's true for everybody with due diligence to the crowd to which you would go to first. He says in here, with what's what I'm fo- we're focusing on here, the gospel is the power of God for salvation. The gospel is the power of God for salvation. So the miracle of salvation, right, it says for salvation. So the miracle of salvation requires a special supernatural tool. Because when we're talking salvation, we're not talking a mild jersey change. Like, ah, I'm no longer Methodist and now I'm Episcopalian. Um, I used to like this soccer team, now I like a different soccer team. Um, nor is it like, well, once I was a skeptic and I thought I was done, but now I think the Christian faith is more reasonable. Pascal's wager. Um, it's not just simply an adjusting of position. Salvation is a wholehearted transformation where, yes, the mind is submitted to Christ, but the heart is as well. The heart is transformed like we belong to him. The whole is a whole new center, a whole new understanding and acclimation to what is true and where we find it and what is good and what is delightful and what's trustworthy. Everything. Christ is everything to us. That's salvation. Salvation isn't changing your goodbye formula. Like, well, I guess I should 
get all Protestant so that when I'm, when I'm going down, I can say the sinner's prayer or um, kind of a backup insurance plan. No, salvation is so much more than simply where you go when you die. It is this new relationship with the Lord. It is life now. It is life then. It is the recentering, the retreasuring of everything to us. And so this says, it is the g- gospel is the power of God for salvation. But we kind of forget that sometimes. We think we're looking for convincing, just simply convincing. I have these friends that don't know Jesus. I have lots of friends that don't know Jesus. And on my not clear thinking days, I just want them, I want them to agree, agree that Jesus is right and is best and true. But I don't want that. I want them, I want them transformed. Yes, I want them saved. By saved, I don't mean simply safe. And one of the things that haunts us many times in our church, in our fellowships, is we want people, as long as they're safe when they die, as long as they're safe when they die, we're just looking for life insurance, salvation. But that's really not what God is offering. God is offering whole life transformation. Not only heaven in the end, but God in your life now. Transformation in your life now. The Spirit of God in you right now. You being freed from the bondage of sin. You stepping into the delights of God. You growing in love for the Lord. You experiencing God's provision for you and God's leading and His changing of you all throughout your life. Truly, all the benefits of the Spirit of God in your life now there's an utter transformation. So in my mind, in my quiet times, I quite often have to like repent from thinking about a certain neighbor and go, man, it sure would be great like if he just put down his rebellion and trusted the Lord and go, okay, wait a second, wait a second. What would be great is if he put down his resistance from the Lord and then God just totally blew him up. Like his heart was just transformed. Like joy and peace and power in his life and him being able to like delight in the Lord and share Christ with others, him investing his life, then there be the ample fruits of the Spirit coming out and him having great effect in his life, being able to yield fruit of 20 and 60 and 100 fold in his life, to think big, to dream big for someone, true salvation. So I commonly have to rethink this in my life because I erode and I just kind of hope that someone would be safe when they die. That's not what we're talking about, safe when we die. We're talking about the transformation. So the miracle of salvation requires a special supernatural tool. God, just follow the logic of this, has identified that tool. God's power is present in the shared message of the gospel. I'm not ashamed of the gospel, God, because it is the power of God. Only God can save somebody. You might be able to convince somebody, but you can't save somebody. And most of the time, you can't even convince somebody. And if you convince them, that does not do really anything for them. They need to be transformed by God. They need to be saved, transformed, brought to new life, born again. How does that happen? That doesn't happen out of your smarty pants. That doesn't happen out of you lovey-dovey. Oh, you just showed them love so much. You took them to the store a thousand times. It's not through the actions, not through the words of us. It is through the power of the gospel. They have to hear who God is in his own words and what he has done. They hear that, and God says, in that, I exhibit my power. Does he say that he'll save every time the gospel goes out? No, he does not say that. He actually says in other places, he actually gives whole analogies of it. Do you guys remember uh, the parable of the four soils? I was reading that this week, right? The word of God, the gospel goes out, and a lot of people just skips right off their forehead. Satan comes, takes it away. It's out of, out of play in their mind. The other ones, the gospel goes, and like, boop, all of a sudden, like, 
looks like there's a life. There's excitement. Woo-hoo! 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 Then you baptize them and they're like, see ya. Right? It goes away because it's not really. It's a little flash in the pan. And the third one is the gospel comes to someone and apparently brings true regenerative life. And they last, but middle-class America so occupies their minds and their hopes and dreams and that kind of stuff that they don't dive deeply into the Lord and they don't see the sun and the, and the cares and concerns of this world come over and crowd them out and they're fruitless. The plant doesn't seem to die, but there's no fruit off it. And the fourth one is where the gospel, the word of God comes in someone's life and it goes in and it creates a mature, slow-built plant and that plant has fruit of 30, 60, 100-fold bringing joy to them and glory to God. Salvation is a massive and beautiful work. And it's something that only God can do. And God says to you and me, I do it through the gospel. And I do it not only through like saving people through the gospel, but by continuing to bring the gospel to the saved ones so that they learn the deeper things of me. And those deeper things of me, which then are believed, yield greater and greater joy and fruit and maturity in their life. Salvation. So, Amazing promise here that this, this, this message here is actually powerful in the message itself. That does not go well with the natural way that most of us think. Uh, most of us think that the greatest tool to affect change in someone, convince them, would be a better argument, better love, better life. Um, if you turn on religious television, um, uh, made up promises about God wanting to give you a Mercedes Benz or something like that if you, if you trust him, called the prosperity gospel. Um, we think that some of these things would be more convincing. There are lies, and those are never convincing. And there are truthful things that are convincing in the, in the chapters that follow. So next week in Easter, we're going to lap back up a couple verses, and we're going to go back to the beginning of Romans 1 where it talks about the resurrection. But after Easter, we're going to descend in the, the second half of Romans 1. You should read it. It talks about what's been revealed because until this time, until the message of Christ comes through Paul, the wrath of God has already been revealed. We as humanity have been messing up for a long time. And God said, I've been revealing my wrath by letting the fruits of sin land on men and women as they continue down these paths of sin. So the wrath of God had already been revealed. Now in the gospel, something new is revealed. The righteousness of God finally we understand how it works. We see where it comes from. Because it was evident that we were in trouble before then. And that would speak to our hearts. But you know what? The, we need more than simply guilt being brought to us by seeing our world around us. Is We need hope. We need help. We need the Lord to lift us up and point us to himself. And so when we think through what we want to share with our friends, there are many wonderful things that we can share with them and do for them. Apologetics, all these kind of things. But in the end... Um, we have to get to the gospel. If you want your friends to know Jesus, y they have to understand the gospel. They can't know Christ without understanding who Christ is and what he did. And that tool, well, I'm telling you, brothers and sisters, is that tool of sharing that simple message of Christ reconciling the world to himself through his life, death, and resurrection. The words you speak carry divine power. The words you speak are the most powerful tool on the planet of the earth for a soul. I know you think it might be being nice to be more powerful. It's not for salvation. Maybe getting better Christmas presents, but not for their salvation, right? If you want salvation in their souls, and we're going after that, use 
the most powerful tool where God himself says, I have placed my power in this tool. And they might say, it doesn't mean anything to me. It doesn't really matter what they say. They say it doesn't mean anything to me. Jesus says, this is where my power. Jesus says in the book of John, anyone who hears my words and rejects him has one who will judge him that day. My words will judge him. So your friends may say, we have said in the past, like, it doesn't matter to me. I'm not convinced. And God goes, you probably don't need to really pay attention to what they're saying with that. Uh, I'm telling you that it is my power for salvation. And I'm telling you that I, my sheep hear my voice. And I'm telling you that the people that are not my sheep, when they hear my voice and put it aside, they are committing not a mistake but a crime. And I'm not saying that to be callous towards them. I'm saying that so that we with Paul might have confidence in the most powerful tool that exists in the universe, which is the spoken gospel. To prayerfully, carefully, with love, don't carpet bomb people with it, but prayerfully, carefully love, learn and hope to get into conversations with people about the gospel. I had a really cool conversation with a person in our church this week. Maybe it was last week. Um, and was I, was I was so blessed by it. It was an incidental conversation. I wasn't looking for it. They weren't looking for it. We got in this conversation about something about the gospel. Because we're Christians, we talk about the gospel, we need the gospel, right? So we're talking about it, and they said my words here, and I apologize to you if you happen to be in person or listening to this. I'm going to shield your identity. Um, but it's so good. I was so encouraged. They said, yeah, I was talking to a person. This person has some stuff going on in their life, and this person said they're a Christian, but there's some weird stuff going on. And so I asked them, like, well, how do you think through the gospel? That's what they asked. How do you think through the gospel? Or something like that. And the person said, they, they gave out probably not a very great, robust sense of, like, reconciled to God through Jesus. Wasn't something like that. It's more one of your classic answers of, like, oh, we got to love people, or um, God just wants us to be happy. Some of those categories. Apologize if I'm butchering the person's wrong answer. Um, and... And then the person, this is a lady, then says, well, here's how I would understand it when I read the Bible. And they went, boop, 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 kind of walked through it. Right? They kind of use gospel six formatting, right? Kind of walked through it like, we're all dead, but he's inviting us to know him and love him. And that happens as we put our faith in, in Jesus. And the person reset the gospel in front of this person. And then, oh, I, I just, my soul is so like elated on this one here. They said to the person, hey, do you mind... Uh, the conversation was coming to an end. I said, uh, do you mind if, we, if I ask you more about this later? If we can talk about this later? And the person said yes. I was like, dude, that is a, a brilliant conversational move. Like, if you've actually got down there to the goods, um, to be able to, like, open up another conversation because the person said, I'm open to talk about that. So you can kind of walk in next time and go, hey, have you been thinking about that? Or, like, I was thinking about something. I was praying for you. I read something. It just creases pathway because this person believes that the gospel is powerful. Believes the gospel is, is that, that gospel conversation is where they want to live with that person. They're hoping to get there by God's grace. They got there. Then they shored up the entrance to it. They dropped the sleeve in there so that they could return back to that conversation because they believe, she believes that the gospel is the power of God for salvation not just for winning a friend, not just for convincing somebody, for the transformation of the heart of a friend. It was sweet. Thank you, dear sister, for sharing with me. I loved it. Hope I didn't embarrass you with that. <coughs> All right. So the gospel is God's power contained in a message. 
or it's not, what do you believe? I guess this. Do you believe that that is where the power is? I, past what, if, if I've just convinced you, does your heart believe that that is how God recruits his children? Figure out if you believe that or not. Talk to the Lord about how it's hard to believe. But as you step into it, I would just say, watch what he does. Watch what he does. Oh, little foolish you. Oh, little foolish me. Used by the Spirit of God. In the, some of the times we would least expect it for the gospel to come out of our mouths and to like poof, light a fire in someone's soul. It is, it is amazing. Problem is, we overestimate the power of our friends' mental and moral resistance to the gospel. We underestimate the power of sin and Satan has in a person's life. And then we wrongly consider what we oppose or who our enemies are. We think that people who are adversarial against us or doubters are enemies. They're not. God tells us that we don't wrestle with that. We wrestle against spiritual powers, rulers, against authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. It's in Ephesians 6. Or, as 1 Corinthians 1 would put it, for the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing. So when that gospel goes out, what's going to happen? Is some people are going to go, that's dumb, it's wrong, it's bigotry, it's foolish. So he actually told us that. You don't have to discover that. For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved is the power of God. For it is written, <coughs> I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, and the discernment of discerning I will thwart. The gospel is the power of God for salvation. Do we want salvation in the hearts of people? Do we want continued transformation and, and, and actualized, realized salvation in our lives, in our brothers and sisters, and see their lives transform more and more into the joy and the power and the peace that God provides? If we want that, we have to use the gospel. That is where God harnesses and places his power. God has chosen to place his saving power in the message of the gospel itself. And finally, our, our last spot for our passage today is this, our new righteousness has been revealed. Our new righteousness has been revealed. Take a look down at verse 17. <clears throat> verse 17 says, for. Okay, I'm, I'm, okay, before we go, I'm struggling a little bit with Romans. Okay, um, here's why. Romans is like meat on the bone. It's some, of, it's some of the deepest stuff in all of Scripture. There are so many things said in the book of Romans. For instance, salvation. When salvation, the word, the two different words for salvation that are used in Romans are there. Sometimes it means the moment of justification. You put your faith in Jesus and you are saved right then. Okay? Past tense. Then sometimes salvation is talking about the lifelong process where a person is being rescued from the, the, the power of sin in their life. They're being saved from being a tortured slave to sin. And that progressively happens over your life. And then sometimes saved in the books of Romans can talk about that moment when Jesus lands in full power and authority and he is spotlessly cleaning shop with fire. And he will save his from that cleaning work. And you want to be saved in that moment from his judging, cleaning work. So there's a past and a present and a future concept of salvation found, all those found in Romans. And likewise, some with, with the word law, we'll hit that. Um, and there's arguments to go through there. So in this verse here, 
there's the word for. It's an argument. It, it's, it's, it's the reason he's using 16. So 16 goes, I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it's the power of God to salvation. To everyone who believes, is believing, believing, not just believed, but believing. To the Jew first, also the Greek, for, it's a connection. So there's these connections. So here's where my mind is kind of blown as we go through this text. Uh, Romans, is, uh, there's just so many things we don't have time to talk about on a Sunday different like little arguments here and there and so I don't know I might stuff them in videos here and there offline um, but this just it's just a fat deep book and it's a really hard one to understand in ways and verse 17 is a fun hard verse so here we go for in it that's in the gospel for in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith as it is written the righteous shall live by faith the righteousness of God what does that mean? It can mean, it does mean three different things in, in the book of Romans. Three different things. I'll tell you which one I think it means here. Here's three things. Number one, the righteousness of God being God's righteousness himself, that he is righteous. Because arguments will be clearly laid out in the book that there's a question in God's people of how is God righteous when, oh, I don't know, let me just pick somebody today. Uh, we got no snoozers. I like picking snoozers. Um, so let's just say Bryce Arnold. He's not snoozing. Um, when Bryce Arnold, Old Testament Bryce Arnold, looks upon God, puts his faith in him, and God overlooks his sin, gives him mercy, all the believers around go, well, you're a good judge, and you never just overlook sin. Did, by overlooking sin and giving mercy, didn't you just be kind of become unrighteous by doing that? So Old Testament, this is a setup. The righteousness of God was un, not known and not understood because there's this thing. If he gives mercy, well, then he's not righteous. But if he, if he exhibits his righteousness, then he's a liar because he didn't give mercy. So there's that, that mystery happening. So that's one, such as the inherent righteousness of God could be that. Number two, it could be, um, the, actually, the actual ability to live righteously, transformably by the power of Jesus, the resurrecting power of the Spirit in us, so that we can say no to sin and yes to the Lord. A new thing that is given by the Spirit of God that we didn't have nearly to that degree in the Old Testament. Or third, it could be deemed righteous, called righteous. Forensically, you are declared righteous by the Lord. So all three of those things happen in the book of Romans. Which one is it here? I believe today we're talking about this. This is the being declared to be righteous part, which we'll see it time and time again through this book here. The gospel is the power of salvation because in this, the newly revealed gospel of Jesus, finally we get to see how we get provided with God's righteousness since we lack our own. In the Old Testament, same God, salvation by faith, a very strict code of obedience that he would have us to follow because we didn't have the indwelling spirit. But in the New Testament, we do have that spirit. But in the New Testament, we realize that we don't have righteousness, and we need that for our account. He, he further says this later on in Romans chapter 3. He says, as it is written, none is righteous. Not, none is righteous. You don't have it. Neither does your grandma. Neither does Gandhi or any moral person you want to point out in the world. None is righteous. No, not one. No one understands. No one seeks God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. 
So we have a righteousness problem. God is righteous. How he was righteous was an Old Testament mystery to some degree. But we knew he was righteous in the Old Testament. And we knew that we needed to be made righteous if we are going to be with him. The question is, how do we get that? In the Old Testament, you have no clue of how you're going to get that. New Testament, clue is unfolded into fullness. Jesus, the righteous one, lives a righteous life and doesn't mess it up once in perfect faith and obedience as he's led by the Spirit. And then Jesus, the righteous one, dies a righteous death for my unrighteous death and then rises again and provides righteousness for us. Forgiveness of sins and then full perfection. So if you know me, we've gone through the scale a couple times. Let's just say there's a negative 10 and a positive 10 up here, okay? Maybe this is inordinately simplistic. Forgiveness brings you from the negative 10 to good old-fashioned zero, okay? Your, your, your record is paid off. What you messed up and what you did is paid off by the cross of Jesus. But now we got another 10 problem from zero to 10 because you ain't got righteousness. You were full of sin as I was, but we also didn't have righteousness. And so Jesus earns righteousness to give us his righteousness in the books. So you literally go into the gospel a negative 10, you walk out a positive 10. In his words, he once and for all perfects those who are in Christ Jesus. Your record is perfected. It is chuck full. You can't do anything to hammer a little sliver of your own righteousness in your own account. There's no room left. Unless you think there's room left in Jesus. And you probably shouldn't think that. And now Jesus is your substitute. That's why we'll take communion. Jesus the Father looks upon Jesus instead of you. Counts his life. Counts his death instead of yours. And he's perfected you. Another way you place to see this is 2 Corinthians 5, 21. For our sake, he made Jesus, who knew no sin, to be sin, so that we in him, so in him we might become, we might become the righteousness of God. Not the righteousness of God drizzled over you like a little bit of like chocolate magic shell on top of your ice cream. Not a little covering of righteousness but like solid chocolate through and through. You are nothing, child of God, you are nothing but the righteousness of God in Jesus if you put your faith in him. That's all there is to you. And it never changes. It gets confusing every morning when you look in the mirror and you fight against sin. But he calls you, remember, you are loved and you are loved and you are his because you have been made the righteousness of God in Jesus. The gospel is powerful for salvation, both coming to know Christ and our onward leading of life, because in it, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith, or into faith, or for faith. Just as written, the righteous shall live by faith. That last portion there, the righteousness, the righteous shall live by faith, is a quotation on the book Habakkuk, not Habakkuk, just Christianity 201. In case you have to bust it out in prayer time, it's good to go with Habakkuk, not Habakkuk. If you do, we love you still, okay? Um, it's a quotation out of there, and in the context of that quotation, is talking about evil, marauding men, nation, who are motivated. What drives them is their selfish pride. And it contrasts the evil people driven by selfish pride with those who are not evil, the righteous ones, driven by faith. Driven by, they are faith-filled people. They live by faith. So if you connect the dots, verse 16, it says, it's the power of God for salvation 
to those who believe, those who are believing. At the end of verse 17, the just shall live by faith, the people that are driven by belief again. In the middle here when it says the righteousness of God is revealed from faith into faith, I think that confusing little statement can mean a couple of things. But I think where we're going is this thing that's said right before it and the thing said right after it. We as God's people, people of the gospel, renewed and brought to life by Christ, we are people who have placed our faith in him and we keep believing. We don't stop believing. We continue to look to his promises and the deeper things he says, such as, I provide full righteousness through Jesus and count it in your account and you are the full righteousness of God in Jesus. Those are deep things. And so you look on the deeper things said about God's righteousness and you believe again and you believe again and you believe again because when you understand being made fully the righteousness of, G of God through Jesus and you get that and you believe it, it has massive power over your life versus you trying to like sing Jesus loves me songs all the time. Right? Depth, truth, constantly believe. The gospel is powerful because it gives us meat by which we believe these great promises, these unfolded greater promises in the New Testament. So our pieces are this. Number one, the gospel will either be an embarrassment or treasure. Really do good work in your heart with this. Don't just bypass that. Like, what is the gospel to you? Do you have, co do you have confidence in it? Do you love it? Are you, are you ashamed of the old and really cling to the new Christ and his message? Number two, God's saving power is present in the shared message of the gospel. Do you believe that? Do you feel free because you are not ashamed of it to be able to interact with people over the gospel, knowing that far more than just simply a construct of words, you are conveying the most powerful tool in all of existence and the only tool by which any person ever will become a believer in Jesus Christ. And third, our new righteousness has been revealed. You know, the Old Testament people would love to know what you could know right now. You really are made righteous through Jesus. You will receive God's righteousness, not man's righteousness, through the work of what he's done. Believe in God's promise of righteousness for you. Don't be ashamed of, but rather treasure. Believe God's promise of the power of the shared gospel. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the details of it, the power of it. I pray that you please, by the power of your spirit, liberate us from our fears and our doubts. Liberate us from our powerlessness by the gospel that you've given us to believe and to use. So please help us. And Lord, we then celebrate with this, remembering our righteousness does come from you, and it's not our own. So we celebrate communion remembering that. We love you and ask that you be with us even as we continue to worship you in song and communion in Christ's name. Amen.